Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Beloved brands know customer relationships are everything. That's why over 130,000 trust Clavio to power smarter digital relationships across their websites, emails, SMS, and reviews. And now there's Clavio AI, your guide to smarter insights, decisions, work, and results. Brands like Everyman Jack trust Clavio AI to personalize product recommendations that keep customers coming back. Discover Clavio AI at Clavio.com slash box. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com backslash box. Hello, and welcome to The Weeds. I'm Ian Milheiser, and I'm your host for a new mini-series called The Most Dangerous Branch. You might know that Alexander Hamilton referred to the judiciary as the least dangerous of the three branches of government. His idea was that the courts neither command an army nor control the treasury like Congress does. But here's the thing. Congress is so dysfunctional, it can barely agree to raise the damn debt ceiling. And the president doesn't actually have that much authority beyond the power to execute the laws that Congress has already passed. He doesn't have much policymaking authority when he isn't acting pursuant to an existing act of Congress. The judiciary, on the other hand, and specifically the Supreme Court of the United States, can do pretty much whatever it wants so long as it has five votes that are willing to go there. As it turns out, you don't need the power of the purse and you don't need the power of the sword so long as you are able to act swiftly and decisively with five votes speaking in unison. So the court began a new term this week. And right now we are at the end of a long campaign by the Republican Party to ensure that it would control the Supreme Court. Republican appointees control six of the nine seats on the Supreme Court and Every single one of those Republican justices is more conservative than Justice Anthony Kennedy, who was the median vote before Trump took office. So this series, The Most Dangerous Branch, will focus on how these six Republicans are likely to reshape the law for millions of Americans. Throughout the GOP's campaign to control the court, the biggest prize, the one they spoke about the most and spoke about with the most vehemence, was overruling Roe v. Wade, and now they are on the cusp of grasping that prize. There's a case before the court this term, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which asks the court to overrule Roe and allow states to ban abortion in its entirety. So, here to talk about this case and what the future of abortion rights are likely to look like, especially if Roe is struck down, is Melissa Murray. Melissa is a law professor at NYU. You may know her from the legal podcast Strict Scrutiny. She's also a leading expert on Roe, on reproductive justice, on the intersection of race and abortion rights. I I really cannot think of anyone else who's better to talk about these issues. And I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Melissa Murray. 
Also, I just want to make a quick programming note. A few hours after I recorded this interview with Melissa, a federal district judge in Texas enjoined that state's anti-abortion law. Things are very much in flux right now with that law. It's possible that by the time you hear this, a higher court and a more conservative court will have stepped in to reinstate that law. But I just wanted to acknowledge that we are aware of that decision. And the reason we do not mention it in this interview is because it happened after we recorded it. Melissa Murray, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with what I really think is the most basic question when we talk about the Constitution and abortion. And I'm going to read a quote from Justice Scalia. Um, He said, regardless of whether you think prohibiting abortion is good or whether you think prohibiting abortion is bad, the Constitution does not say anything about it. It leaves it up to democratic choice. And Scalia is right. I think that most questions in the United States are left up to Democratic choice. So why is abortion different? Why is this something that shouldn't be decided by legislatures? Well, so so first, let's back up with this quote. I mean, I, I think it's a little disingenuous for the dearly departed Justice Scalia to suggest that anything that is a right that we recognize as fundamental and protect through the Constitution is something that has to be textually enumerated in the Constitution. Like, that, that's just not the case. Like, there is a whole discussion that dates back to the 1920s about these sort of fundamental human rights, the right to marry, the right of individuals to raise their children in the manner of their choosing, that are these inalienable human rights that precede the development of the state and, for that reason, do not have to be guaranteed by the state. So these are so fundamental to personhood that they don't have to be spelled out. And, you know, the right to marry is not specifically enumerated in the Constitution. And the idea behind a fundamental right to abortion is the idea that this question of whether to bear or beget a child to procreate is so fundamental to the person, and specifically historically, has been so fundamental to women's identities, um, both within the family and outside of it, that it's not something that can be compelled by the state. It has to be freely chosen by that individual because it is so constitutive of identity, of personhood, of what it means to be a citizen to, to some degree. And so, you know, I just want to start from that point, like this idea that what this Constitution says exhausts what we are able to protect by its terms, I think, is a fallacy. And Justice Scalia certainly knew that. And I think the current conservative movement knows that. I mean, we hear them talking ad nauseum about executive privilege. There is no place in the Constitution where executive privilege is specifically enumerated. We imply it, we infer it from the fact that there is an executive and that that person who acts as the chief executive of the United States has certain duties that require a kind of prerogative to keep some things privileged. So again, the Constitution doesn't exhaust everything, and I I just want to put a marker and a pin in that. There's two different legal theories regarding why abortion should be protected. I mean, one, the the legal term is substantive due process. The idea is that abortion is this liberty that should just be beyond the reach of government. The other is, you know, again, the legal term is an equal protection theory. You know, the idea that this is so important, as you said, to women's identity. So why does that distinction matter, do, do, do you think? 
I think it is an important distinction. Um, not everyone sees it as a distinction. And certainly people like Justice Kennedy, for example, understood liberty and equality, like substantive due process liberty and equal protections guarantee of equality to be inextricably intertwined to some degree, such that liberty was a precondition for equality. And I think that makes a lot of sense. The reason why we have not seen a wider range of arguments supporting the abortion right is simply because the court in deciding Roe decided it on substantive due process grounds. Again, this right to privacy that previously had been articulated in 1965 in Griswold versus Connecticut. And it was a kind of negative right, um, a freedom of married couples in 1965 to use contraception within the confines of their marriage and to be free of state interference or criminalization in so doing. And then a few years later in Roe versus Wade in 1973, the court simply taxed on that vision of privacy to this question of whether there is a right to terminate a pregnancy. Like some decisions are so private, so intimate, like using contraception, like determining whether or not you're going to bear or beget a child that you cannot make them in a situation where the government is sort of compelling a particular choice. To be very clear, though, those were not the only frames that were animating abortion litigation in the period before Roe. You know, there is a very active litigation in New York State, a challenge to New York's abortion law that is brought by feminist lawyers, and they raise arguments about how the abortion law discriminates on the basis of class, it discriminates on the basis of sex. They are also talking about privacy, but they're talking about equality in a very broad way, talking about the women of color who are most harmed by New York's ban on abortion. And so they're thinking about this in a wide range of terms. Likewise, there's another case in Connecticut, Abley versus Markle, or um, it's also called Women versus Connecticut. And they too make equality arguments that sound in sex equality, class equality, race equality, in addition to privacy. It turns out that the Roe case is brought by Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, and they're relatively young lawyers working out of Texas. They're not really connected up with the rest of the feminist movement that's agitating for liberalizing abortion laws. And I think that's reflected in the arguments they make before the court. Um, they really hew to this privacy logic that is coming out of Griswold. Almost all of their arguments sound in that dimension of privacy, as opposed to the equality arguments the feminists are making. And turns out that the New York case gets mooted out when New York repeals its law, so that doesn't make it to the Supreme Court. Something similar happens in the Connecticut case. That doesn't make it to the Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is trying to litigate a challenge to a federal law that requires service personnel to terminate a pregnancy if they become pregnant and want to keep their job. So there is a female Air Force servicewoman who is pregnant and wants to keep the pregnancy and then give the child up for adoption. And the military says, if you do that, you lose your job. But if you want to keep your job, you've got to have an abortion. So Ginsburg thought this was the perfect vehicle to highlight how abortion wasn't necessarily about avoiding motherhood, but rather simply making decisions on your own terms. And she wanted to highlight the equality dimensions of reproductive rights. And she thought that would be a great case to get to the court. But the Air Force changes its policy. It's mooted out. And ultimately, Roe is the last case standing. And it's the one that the court takes up in 1973. And the court takes the avenue that the litigators have provided. And that's how we get 
the right to privacy undergirding the right to abortion, even though there were lots of other frames that could have been vindicated. And eventually, when Ginsburg is on the court um, and in later cases like Casey, you begin to see the seeds of an equality argument emerge, this idea that the right to terminate a pregnancy is absolutely essential to sex equality in, in this country, for women being able to sort of interact with the rest of the world as citizens of the United States. That comes later, but it was a path that Roe could have taken, but the court did not. One thing that's always strikes me when I read the Roe opinion, I mean, Roe was 1973. That was eight years before the first woman was confirmed to the Supreme Court. It was also three years before Craig v. Boren, which is the seminal decision establishing the modern framework for gender equality. And I'm always struck by how the justices just seem to lack the vocabulary that we now have to discuss gender equality. I, I mean, I, I, I wonder, and I mean, maybe I'm being Pollyannish here, but like, would the politics of this issue have played out differently if from the beginning we'd been talking about this in a less abstract way and like using the sort of robust vocabulary of gender equality we have now? I, I think that's surely correct. Not only did the court gain experience in talking about sex equality as the 70s went on, uh, I, I think we would have understood abortion restrictions um, as a species of sex discrimination as simply, rather than as simply a, a means of the state interfering with private choices, right? So I, I think there would have been a much broader understanding of the stakes of this question. And, and I think you get a glimpse of that in the Casey opinion where Justice O'Connor is on the court. And, you know, I, I that, always think— That was think, 1992, right? Yes, it's a 1992 case. Um, everyone expects that Casey will be the case that overturns Roe and instead Souter— Kennedy and O'Connor strike this kind of compromise where they maintain the core of Roe, but make some other changes that are actually quite important. Um, but one of the things that I, I always think is so striking about Casey is that the court upholds quite a lot of the Pennsylvania Abortion Control Act that's being challenged in that case. Um, with the exception of one provision, the spousal notification provision that required Pennsylvania women to first notify their husbands if they were going to seek an abortion. And, you know, the opinion really takes issue with this. And I, I assume, and I think my assumption is likely correct, that this was the piece of the law that Justice O'Connor really took issue with. And, you know, I raise this, um, I think it's important in terms of representation in two ways. So one, I think it makes clear that you really needed a woman on the court to be able to identify what an indignity it would be to ask a woman to first notify her husband before making a decision like this. But on the other hand, I think it also shows um, what the stakes of abortion were for relatively privileged, wealthy women like O'Connor, right? She found no problem with the other provisions in the Abortion Control Act, the parental notification provision, the waiting period. You know, for someone like her who is just sort of used to breaking down barriers and just sort of, you know, powering through things, there was no waiting period that would stop her if she wanted to get an abortion. There was no parental notification requirement that was going to keep her from doing what she felt she needed to do. But the spousal notification provision, that was a slight on her dignity as a woman. And I think if there had been a woman of color on the panel at that time, you might have gotten a very different set of 
opinions about the other provisions because I think someone with that experience would have been able to talk about, you know, what it meant to have a waiting period. Um, if you were someone who was low income, who didn't have childcare, who didn't have a job where you could sort of easily slip in and out of the workplace. But for O'Connor, those sorts of things didn't seem like impediments that were undue burdens or substantial obstacles. So I think it makes the point um, in two very important ways how much representation on the court does matter. So you brought up how everyone thought that Roe v. Wade was going to die in 1992 with Casey. And here we are again. Um, There's this new case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. And I think folks are pretty pessimistic about whether Roe is going to survive this case, too. So before we dig down into it, can you just tell us a bit of what this case is about and what's at stake here? So Dobbs is a challenge to Mississippi HB 1510, which is a law that prohibits abortion at 15 weeks of pregnancy. The law has not been in effect in Mississippi in part because it is in conflict with the existing Supreme Court precedents, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Accordingly, when it was enacted, it was immediately challenged by abortion providers and immediately enjoined by the court um, in a preliminary injunction, temporary restraining order that prevents the state from actually putting it into effect until its constitutionality is determined. So it's not a situation um, where the law is in effect right now, but um, it is being challenged and it's expected that this will be the most significant abortion case that the court has taken up since Casey. One thing that I really struggle with as a journalist, so like the, the specific question that the Supreme Court asked in Dobbs isn't, should we overrule Roe v. Wade? It's some confusing question about like whether or not viability is the right line. So there's just been a lot of cases where the court isn't being asked to explicitly overrule Roe v. Wade, although the parties in Dobbs are asking them to explicitly overrule Roe v. Wade. The court is asking, hey, should we come up with this new legal framework where Roe is technically still good law, but states may be able to ban abortion anyway? So I guess what my question is, is like, what is the point where when I'm writing my article about the decision that the Supreme Court just handed down, I should say, even though they didn't use the magic words, Roe v. Wade is in effect overruled. The petition for Dobbs arrives at the court in 2020 when Ruth Bader Ginsburg is still a member of the panel. So it's a five to four conservative court with the chief justice as the pivotal swing justice. This has conferenced a number of times, which is to say that it is listed on the court's docket for discussion about what cases they're actually going to grant certiorari on. They, you know, they have a very discretionary docket. They don't have to take every case that comes before them. And this case gets relisted multiple times at their conference, which suggests to those watching the court that It is a situation where they're fighting a little bit, maybe a lot, about what to do about this case. Flash forward, and now it's post-September 2020. So Justice Ginsburg has passed away. She's now going to be replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. Dobbs is again relisted. This time with Justice Barrett at the conference, they take it up. And so, you know, one question is, why did they have this sort of weird question presented? The court can decide how it wants to frame the question that it will ultimately answer. And the question is about whether viability is going to continue to be a salient marker in the court's abortion jurisprudence. Um, They don't actually 
explicitly say that they're taking up the question of whether or not Roe will be overruled. And I imagine that the decision to frame the question that way is um, something of an appeasement to the three liberals on the court. You know, obviously we'll know if the court explicitly says Roe was wrong when it was decided, it is wrong today, it is now overruled. That's explicit. Um, But the de facto overruling of Roe, I think, is more subtle, and I think it's harder for the media to pick up on, unfortunately. And the more subtle de facto overruling is to do something like, for example, say that viability is no longer a salient marker in the court's jurisprudence. And so that upholds the Mississippi law, which would send abortion access in Mississippi into disarray, for sure. It would also send the lower federal courts into disarray as they try to figure out whether a 10-week ban is okay, or a six-week ban, for that matter. And that confusion by itself hobbles abortion access, like the fact that people don't know what is permitted, clinics don't know what is legal, what is lawful, that will chill abortion access, certainly. Um, And and then more profoundly, um, abortion access is already hobbled in the United States. It's already operating on this knife's edge. Um, A decision like that will not formally overrule Roe versus Wade, but it will literally take abortion off the table for broad swaths of women who lack the resources, lack the opportunity to travel, lack the sophistication to know where to go if they are first turned down at the place that is closest to them or you know the place that they're most familiar with. And so I think this is all part of the game plan. Um, sending the entire landscape into disarray is not as effective as overruling Roe, but it's pretty effective. And you know, the hard part will be the media will say Roe has been saved. This is a victory, but it won't be a victory. Or if it is a victory, it is a Pyrrhic victory. Let's say we do get a sort of disingenuous opinion which says, oh, yeah, we we rule today that the core holding of Roe must be affirmed and stare decisis and yada, yada, yada. And then it says, but the new rule is that the question of when the fetus is viable is up to the state legislature. So like Mississippi could determine that the fetus is viable in the first minute of pregnancy. Should liberals be happy that like, at least there's this little nub of row left that someday we could maybe cause to reflower again, or, you know, should conservatives be happy because they get the result that they want without maybe having to pay the full political price? So I think conservatives should be happy if this happens because they do get almost everything they want without paying the full political price. And and to be clear, I think there is a political price to be paid to formally overrule Roe versus Wade in an election year. And I don't think anyone in authority necessarily wants to see American women marching to the polls with Roe's death on their lips. But in another way, it's not a victory for conservatives, or at least not the die-hard, anti-choice conservatives. Um, and, and you know, this has been the issue for them since 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Casey wasn't necessarily a victory for abortion rights. It actually gave states broad authority to legislate and restrict abortion access, even though it formally upheld the core of Roe. But you know, conservatives got a lot of what they wanted in Casey, but what they didn't get is this formal statement that Roe is bad law, that it is a constitutional apostasy. And I think, you know, that is the rub for them. And, and it's it's why Roe is the white whale. It's not enough to simply hobble Roe. It's not enough that Roe is a Potemkin village, that it is 
utterly desiccated as a right, what they want and what they won't stop until they get is this formal statement that Roe was never good law, that it was always wrong, that it is wrong today, and that it is now overruled. And so it will not be a victory for reproductive rights if Roe is just desiccated, um, but it's not going to be the kind of victory that anti-choice conservatives want either. So before we go to our first break, I want to get into another reason why I think a lot of abortion rights activists are very pessimistic here, and that is Texas. So Roe, or at least the the full right to an abortion protected by Roe and Casey, basically doesn't exist in Texas right now. Uh, you know, could you talk talk me through how we got to that point? So the Texas law is not substantively that different from the Mississippi law that's currently pending before the court. Um, Mississippi bans abortion at 15 weeks. Texas is more extreme, bans it at six. But the difference between Mississippi and Texas is that the Mississippi law is enforced by a state official, um, the Department of Health. The Texas law absolutely takes the state out of the enforcement business, specifically takes the state out of the enforcement business. Um, And the reason it does that is because if there is a state official charged with enforcing this law, then the abortion providers could challenge this law's constitutionality by suing that state official, and a lower court would be obliged to enjoin it because it is flagrantly unconstitutional. So so if you're the plaintiff, you have to be able to sue a state official in order to get into right. federal court. Right. right. You have to be able to sue a state official in order to get into federal court. So what they have done is taken the state out of this, delegated the enforcement of this law to private citizens. And the court itself said, this is a really novel and unusual enforcement scheme. We kind of don't know what to do with it. We're just going to let it play out. The weird part about that is it would have been very easy for the court to say, you know what, this is a random kind of weird enforcement scheme. We see that the underlying substance of this law is in conflict with existing precedents. We're going to get to some of these existing precedents in this other case, Dobbs. We are going to put everything on ice until we resolve Dobbs, which is something the Supreme Court could totally have done. And instead, they let this law go into effect. Do you think the court's going to let this state of affairs continue forever? Because, I mean, I can imagine like, you know, New York could pass a law saying that we're going to ban guns and it can only be enforced by private suits. I mean, Congress could pass a law saying that it is illegal to criticize President Biden and it can only be like you can think of any unconstitutional law. And I just wonder, like, is the Supreme Court going to want this like Chekhov's gun hanging on the mantelpiece waiting for someone to pass a law concerning a constitutional right that they actually care about? I don't know. I mean, I think first we actually have to see blue states being willing to play hardball on that. But when you have five votes, they let you do what you want. All right. Well, on that sad note, let's uh, go ahead and take a break. And then we're going to come back and talk about what the world is going to look like without Roe v. Wade. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. 
It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs Furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burroughs' new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrowcom weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrowcom weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. Welcome back. I'm Ian Milheiser. I'm here with Melissa Murray, and we're talking about the future of abortion rights once the Supreme Court rules in a big case that it's going to hear this term. So let's assume the worst. Let's assume that Roe v. Wade is overruled completely. What does it look like for people who can afford to fly to a blue state or to Canada or wherever else? And then what does it look like for people who cannot do that? Well, let me first say something controversial. I'm not sure that it's the worst thing if they explicitly overrule Roe, because I think that would have a galvanizing effect in politics. And that could be quite generative in in a lot of ways. Um, It would certainly wake people up. I, I worry that a functional overruling of Roe without actually saying Roe is overruled insulates people, um, anesthetizes them to what the real dangers are. And that too would hobble abortion access, but wouldn't provide the catalytic moment that I think would wake people up and and get people moving in politics. So let me just bracket that for a minute about, you know, what is the actual worst case scenario? But I agree with you that if Roe were to be overturned, it would be catastrophic for access. Um, I don't know that it would necessarily go back to the back alley abortion days that people talk about, although, you know, we understand and we know that whether abortion is lawful or not, people will terminate pregnancies for whatever reason. And, and, you know, how they choose to do that, I I think, may run the gamut. Conservatives argue that this would simply kick the question back to the states, but I think that's disingenuous as well. Um, You know, I was just at this hearing for the House Oversight Committee as a witness the other day, and I was surprised that many of the Republicans on that committee were not talking about this being kicked back to the states for democratic deliberation about, you know, what various states thought about abortion. They were talking openly in terms of fetal personhood. And so, you know, one long-range development I think we will see gather steam is 
you know, this may go to the states initially, but it won't stay with the states. And, and instead, you know, if you have enough state legislatures that get turned red and you are able to do so, you can have this movement for a constitutional amendment to read the fetus into the Constitution itself. And that would ban abortion across the entire country, a fetal personhood amendment. And so that's a world, I mean, I don't know if it's imminent, but I I think it is the next step once you kick this back to the states. What does it mean to kick it back to the states? Um, At least initially, I think we're going to see really uneven access to reproductive care throughout the country. Um, Broad swaths of the country, like the South and the Midwest, are going to be abortion-free zones. And we're going to see women having to travel either out of the country or to blue states where abortion is available in order to get that care. And so, you know, they will be reproductive refugees traveling between states in order to do that. And that's going to be really burdensome on people who are poor, who don't have the resources to travel, young people who may not be able to tell a parent about this, um, people who are in abusive situations in terms of their intimate relationships. I I think it's just going to make it much harder. Women who are working, but not working the sort of white-collar job where you can just leave and no one's asking you where you're going. Women who already have children and are already dealing with an uneven childcare landscape are going to be doubly burdened by this. So so one thing that strikes me about the regime that Casey set up in 1992 is under Casey, states can't ban abortion, but they basically have limitless power to tell abortion patients that they are doing something very, very shameful. You know, you know, you could be forced to march through a line of protesters to get to the clinic. Your doctor will read you a script drafted by anti-abortion law. I mean, you you know, I could go on. And I'm curious for your thoughts on how effective a political tactic this is. You, You know, would the politics of abortion be different if the people seeking abortions didn't have to run through this gauntlet and be reminded by their government over and over again that they are very bad people who are doing something very, very shameful. In my research, I often think about what is the difference between criminal penalties and civil impositions to some degree? And this, I think, is an apt example. Um, Roe decriminalized abortion, like the Texas law was a criminal law that made abortion a crime. But that doesn't mean that the desire to treat something as a moral judgment in the manner of a crime simply evaporates because the Constitution or the Supreme Court says that it cannot be criminalized by the state. Um, you know, I think you can see similar kinds of impulses emanating from Lawrence versus Texas, which decriminalized same-sex sodomy. There are lots of ways in which you might continue to communicate that you have deep antipathy for abortion short of a criminal law. And I think that's what we saw with those trap laws, targeted regulations of abortion providers that required ultrasounds of women seeking abortions, that require physicians to read a script, um, again, like compromising certain professional norms among physicians. And, And so, you know, I think of those as a kind of convoluted web that individually seem unobjectionable. What's the big deal about a script? What's the big deal about an ultrasound? But if you think about all of them in concert, working on this single decision to make a particular choice, 
it is as pernicious as a criminal ban and the shame factor, like the sort of moral judgment that is levied in each of these individual restrictions, I think is perhaps not quite comparable to losing your liberty under a criminal law, but very, very close, right? And the shame is the point. And the other part of the shame, I think, is it is so stigmatized that you cannot talk about it, which makes it easier for future laws and future restrictions to be passed because no one's getting up and saying, you know what, when this happened to me, I didn't feel like that at all. Like, I actually thought this was a really important decision for my life. The shame keeps people quiet, and it allows people to legislate against it. The shame is the point. About 40 to 50 percent of abortions now are medication abortions. You know, rather than having to go through a surgical procedure, you're given some pills, you go home and, and you take them. And the government just has it been effective at banning drugs? Like, you know, there, there are lots of drugs that are, are legal that are still widely available. And so in a world where states could still ban medication abortions, do you think that there will still be widespread access to them? Will people who need these drugs be able to get reliable pills and know that they are actually getting what they think they are paying for? You know, how much does access to medication abortions mitigate the impact of a decision overruling Roe v. Wade? I think it could mitigate it, certainly in the short term. But I mean, again, to your point about how different abortion is and how thick the antipathy for abortion is, um, I imagine if people were using medication abortion as a workaround for surgical abortions being unavailable, you would see a greater effort to clamp down on it. I think we saw this during the pandemic as more states limited opportunities for surgical abortion, that medication abortion became a real option for people, um, certainly with telehealth and whatnot. Uh, And then we saw the Trump administration take steps to limit the opportunity for medication abortion by requiring individuals seeking that two-pill protocol to actually come in person to receive it. And this was at a point where the FDA had relaxed the requirement of in-person distribution of a whole range of prescription drugs, but the abortion pills were different. And, you know, so I'm not especially confident that medication abortion is going to stay under the radar. Um, I think we already have seen the state sort of move to make it harder to do that, and even in a pandemic. So I have a few questions about, I guess, what the anti-abortion and like the broader social conservative movements next moves are going to be. You mentioned fetal personhood and a fetal personhood is the idea that a fetus has the same legal status that you, that you and I have. So anything it's illegal to do to you and me, it would also be illegal to do to a fetus. One way to implement that might be through a constitutional amendment. Theoretically, it might be a state might implement it through a statute. But I've also seen some lawyers argue that the Constitution already requires the government to treat the fetus as if it has the same status as a person. How much of a threat do you think that legal argument is? You know, are there five votes now for that argument? Do you think there'd be five votes for it in the future? Hard to say, um, in part because the five conservatives that I'm thinking of, at least one of them is still a little bit unknown in terms of what her broad commitments. I mean, I think we know that Amy Coney Barrett is skeptical, um, maybe even, you know, deeply opposed to abortion based on 
her writings, but I, like what her views of fetal personhood are, I think are still quite speculative at this point. But I do think the interest in fetal personhood is a real one, and it is potentially devastating to reproductive rights because if you take the whole idea of constitutional personhood seriously, then not only is the fetus protected by the Constitution, the fetus is a person for purposes of the Constitution. And that opens a whole range of inquiry and argument based on this. And I think we're already seeing the seeds of this, um, you know, kind of borrowing of civil rights logic and applying it to the fetus. So the Texas law that requires private enforcement of the, the six-week ban is in a lot of ways like anti-discrimination laws that provide a private cause of action to individuals to sue for civil rights in circumstances where it is imagined that certain states or state officials will not step up and do it. Like the private attorneys general, like that's basically what this law is. Like they're borrowing from the civil rights movement, but just applying it to the fetus. And they're talking about the fetus as having certain kinds of rights. So, you know, take, for example, trait selection laws or reason bans. So these are laws that prohibit abortion if undertaken for sex selection, race selection, or because of the diagnosis of a fetal anomaly. They are defended essentially as anti-discrimination measures for the fetus. And, you know, I think we're just, the whole idea of fetal personhood will play out in that way. Like anything that's good for people, um, anything that's good for marginalized communities will be good for that particular marginalized community of the unborn. So th- there's a brief, you know, I learned about this actually when you highlighted on Twitter, filed by the architect of Texas's anti-abortion law. Um, and it argued that not only Roe v. Wade, but also Lawrence v. Texas, which says that the government can't criminalize consensual sex acts, and uh, Obergefell, which is the marriage equality decision, should both be overruled. And there's a logic there. I mean, the, the, you know, Roe, Lawrence, and Obergefell all relied on very similar constitutional arguments to reach the result that they reached. So how realistic do you think the threat is there that once they come for abortion, they're coming for sex, they're coming for marriage, and maybe they're coming for contraception. You know, what what else is, is, is in the line? So when I tweeted that, someone came at me and accused me of, you know, having hyperbolic lady parts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it's hyperbole at all. And I, I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you come for Roe, you're essentially coming for this idea that the Constitution does not protect a right of privacy for this kind of intimate decision-making. Um, and if, if that's your premise, then what else is off the table? Nothing, really, given all of the other decisions that have been rooted in the right to privacy. Contraception is certainly on the table. And to be very clear, the conservative legal movement has talked about certain forms of contraception, like the IUD, as an aberto facient, right? So contraception is very definitely um, in the crosshairs if Roe falls. That brief that Jonathan Mitchell, the architect of SB8, 
file, that brief not only speaks of Lawrence and Obergefell, but also references Loving versus Virginia, the 1967 decision that legalized interracial marriage on both equality grounds and privacy due process grounds. It also mentions Griswold versus Connecticut, which is the decision that started all of this in 1965 by announcing a right of privacy. So, And, and that's the contraception decision. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's a contraception decision. So It's not going to just end with abortion. There is a common thread that links all of this, a through line that goes through all of these decisions. And that through line is Griswold and privacy. And so these fates are linked in certain ways. And, you know, maybe it's abortion today, um, pregnant people, women today, but it won't just be pregnant people and women going forward. Almost immediately after the Texas decision came down, which effectively allowed Texas to ban most abortions in that state, we saw the court's approval ratings crater. There were three different polls. I don't know if that's going to sustain itself or not, but you can imagine. So they overrule Roe. Maybe they go after Obergefell, too. So now people who are married could potentially lose their marriage. You know, maybe they go after Lawrence or they go after they, they, they go after Griswold and all of a sudden our most private, you know, sexual activity is something that the government can control. At some point, you know, you would think that there would be a backlash. You, you know, a, a, how much legitimacy do you think that the court has to start bringing the government back into what have, you know, for 50 or 60 years been very private spaces that the government cannot touch? Well, so again, when you have five, they let you do what you want, right? So that was that was why there was all of this anxiety around the court, so much anxiety about Justice Ginsburg maintaining her seat, um, so much keening and wailing when she passed away because it was obvious what was going to happen. It's also why you've seen the Republicans move on the courts like nothing I've ever seen, right? I mean, they have been incredibly, incredibly focused and successful, not just on the Supreme Court, but in the lower federal courts. At the Supreme Court, you know, we've seen outlandish power plays, like refusing Merrick Garland a hearing, um, you know, that was outrageous and then set the tone for what we saw when Justice Ginsburg passed away. I mean, to be fair, he was the sitting president at the time, um, but to pass through a justice in less time than it would take a university to tenure someone is really unorthodox. I mean, like it was a very quick and speedy confirmation process. Um, But that was the point, right? Many of the things that they are doing are not policy choices that would have broad support among members of the public. That's why you're seeing these low polling data about the court and about Congress, for that matter. Um, These are not things they could do in majoritarian politics, but it is a set of things they can do in minoritarian politics using the courts, weaponizing the courts as a means of promoting a minoritarian agenda. And that's essentially what they have done here. Um, And so, yes, uh, I think there had been a sense because of the things that had happened before, um, the denial of Merrick Garland, the, you know, nominating Neil Gorsuch after the fact, what happened with Amy Coney Barrett's seat, all of the flap around Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. I think people were already beginning to get some sense that maybe the courts were captured. Maybe the courts were being weaponized in, in some degree. 
And then after September 1st, with that highly unorthodox decision on the shadow docket, I think you had people who were like, wait a minute, this is not cricket. Like this is, something's really off here. And I think that polling data reflected a sense that, oh, wow, it's really true. The court is ideologically captured. And that's what we're seeing. And I also think it's why we had four justices hit the speech circuit to tell us that, in fact, they are not partisan hacks, which is a little bit like, you know, the lady doth protest too much. Is there a political limit to what the court can do? I I mean, you know, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have imagined that court packing, you know, the idea that you could add just add new seats to the Supreme Court to dilute the votes of its current members would be something under serious conversation. You you know, there's a theory called departmentalism that, you know, Biden could just order the U.S. Marshals not to enforce the court's opinions. Like there are radical tactics that could be deployed against a rogue judiciary. At what point or does there come a point where you think the public starts saying, yeah, that's what we got to do? So I don't know what that point is. I mean, I really think that's a question for folks on the ground. Like, what is the tipping point for the public? Like, I would have thought the tipping point was when an armed mob rolled on Congress, but apparently that was not yet a bridge too far. Yeah, I, I think that's the question. Have we become anesthetized to anti-democratic influences in our society to the point where everything seems normalized and, and there's nothing that could catalyze us to action? I don't know. Um it is a terrific question. I do think there has been real agitation and you know, people have been exercised about the abortion question, um, in part because I, I think Roe has had so many near misses, but has always, you know, survived, hobbled and desiccated, but, you know, there. And, and now it really does feel like that's not going to be the case. You know, I, I wonder if the court does not formally overrule Roe. We'll just go back to our slumbers and, you know, be happy with our our lot in life. But I do think that there is a point where the court cannot get away with being so out of step with the public. And again, there is broad support among the public for abortion rights. People may disagree about what the scope and nature of the right should be, but they agree that it should be protected by the Constitution. And you know, the court is unlike the other branches. It doesn't have the power of the purse. It doesn't have the power of the sword. It depends on the public believing it is legitimate and following its decisions because it is legitimate. And so when people say they don't trust the court, that they think the court is captured, that's not good. And I think certainly Chief Justice Roberts understands that and has, I think, acted in ways in the past that reflect that understanding The question is, can he rein in what is essentially a conservative majority that does not need him? So let's go and take a break here, and then we're going to come back and talk about the history of how we got to this point. Beloved brands know customer relationships are everything. That's why over 130,000 trust Klaviyo to power smarter digital relationships across their websites, emails, SMS, and reviews. And now... There's Clavio AI, your guide to smarter insights, decisions, work, and results. Brands like Everyman Jack trust Clavio AI to personalize product recommendations that keep customers coming back. Discover Clavio AI at Clavio.com slash box. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com backslash box. Welcome back. I'm Ian Milheiser. I'm here with Melissa Murray discussing abortion and its future in the Supreme Court. 
Roe, when it was decided in 1973, Melissa, was a 7-2 to decision. It was written by Justice Harry Blackman, who's a Richard Nixon appointee. Noted liberal Richard Nixon. Yeah. It was, you know, the opinion was joined by two other Nixon appointees. I, I mean, like, it, it wasn't a completely uncontroversial decision at the time, but it also wasn't a particularly partisan decision at the time. Well, it, it's really interesting. Um, when the decision was announced in January of 1973, it was immediately overshadowed by the death of Lyndon Johnson, um, former president. So it kind of passed under the radar a little bit. Um, and the blowback, the backlash to Roe really doesn't galvanize until the 1980s with the growth of the Christian right and the Republican Party tacking right to bring in Christian evangelicals into the party as part of a broad mission to do a kind of political realignment in the South and in the Midwest. I would recommend to you and your listeners Jennifer Holland's really excellent book, Tiny You, a history, a Western history of the anti-abortion movement, where you know, she chronicles this political realignment that is really premised on capturing Christian evangelicals and Mormons. Um, and she talks about the shift in the Republican Party. Ronald Reagan signed into law as California governor, California's Therapeutic Abortion Act, which liberalized abortion access in that state. Preston Bush, or no, Prescott Bush, excuse me, the senator from Connecticut, was an outspoken proponent of family planning and, and was an honorary chairperson of Planned Parenthood. So was Dwight David Eisenhower. Um, Prescott Bush's son, George H.W. Bush, um, was so in favor of family planning measures when he was a Republican congressman from Midland, Texas, that he earned the nickname Rubbers Bush. So R Rubbers being a, a condom. Exactly. So, you know, reproductive rights enjoyed broad bipartisan support. Um, and you had a lot of sort of traditional GOP waspy Protestants being very much in favor of reproductive rights. Um, and it was really Catholics who were Democrats who were not interested in abortion and contraception. And the story of how that shifts and change is a fascinating one. Um, it is a story that is largely spurred by politics and, and this interest in reorganizing and restructuring the Republican Party. Um, you know, the work of Lee Atwater um, in large part is a big part of this. And so Jennifer's book is fantastic and talks about it, but um, it is truly one of the most interesting political stories of our age. So the fashionable idea right now amongst conservative judges is originalism. You know, the, the idea that the Constitution should be read as it was understood at the time it was drafted. And one of Mississippi's arguments for why Roe should be overruled is they say, look, Roe is rooted in the 14th Amendment. At the time that the 14th Amendment was drafted, they claim that 30 of 37 states had laws restricting abortion. And so the argument is, look, like at this time, abortion bans would have been normal. So setting aside the question of whether or not originalism is the correct way to read the Constitution, is that history correct? So Harry Blackman anticipated, um, I don't think he understood it as originalism, but I think he anticipated the critique that if you have laws criminalizing abortion that go well back 
then there cannot be a fundamental right to abortion because these laws would belie the idea that this is something that we have always understood as fundamental and worthy of constitutional protection. And he writes in the Roe opinion after doing all kinds of research on these criminal bans at the Mayo Clinic um, during his time in Minnesota in the court's recess. Um, he does all of this research and determines that In fact, for much of the history of the United States, women did have an opportunity to terminate a pregnancy, and and they did so before this point in time known as quickening, where the fetus's first movements could be detected by the person carrying the pregnancy. And so he notes that. Um, It's really post-Civil War that you begin to see all of these laws criminalizing abortion pop up. And he doesn't really get into that, but I think it's worth explaining why you have so many of these criminal bans. And it is this period following the Civil War where there is tremendous anxiety about the demographic character of the country. And, you know, women of means, white women uh, who are middle class, are very interested in first-wave feminism's interest in voluntary motherhood. And this is the idea that you don't have to have as many babies as your husband puts in you. You can determine how big your family is going to be, what the timing of them would be by using contraception, um, pessaries, like sort of earlier forms of contraception. And there's also the prospect of terminating a pregnancy, which you know they've known about for years through midwives and other, um, you know, faith healers within communities. So middle-class white women are exercising this interest in voluntary motherhood. They're contracepting, they are terminating pregnancies. And as a consequence, the birth rate among native-born white women falls precipitously. In contrast, You have the birth rate of immigrant women. So these are Irish women, you know, women from Germany. So women we would now think of, I think, as white today, but at the time were very much understood as ethnic others. Um, They are having children in broad numbers. They are not using contraception. They are not using abortion. And there is this deep, deep fear that their birth rate will exceed that of the native-born white women, and suddenly we will be a nation of immigrants. And in fact, Teddy Roosevelt gets on the stick and says, you know, we have got to stop abortion. We have got to get more white women having children, you know, the right kind of white women. And so that's the genesis of the criminal bans on abortion, this anxiety around what white women are doing and, and what their immigrant counterparts are not doing. And so it is actually interesting um, in the way in which the interest in the criminalization of abortion and banning abortion is actually fueled by a desire to maintain racial purity, to promote white supremacy. Um, You don't hear the originalists talking about that. So so you wrote a, a fascinating article about, I guess, the intersection of race and abortion rights. And one point that you make in it is that um, in the at least in the post-Civil War period, um, the professions played a big role in the criminalization of abortion. Doctors tended to be white and wealthy, and often people who are performing abortions came from folk medicine traditions. I mean, can you just flesh out that argument for me? Because I just found it so fascinating. Sure. Um, you know, the campaign to criminalize abortion is animated and driven primarily by physicians. This is a period of time post-Civil War where 
the medical profession is actually trying to professionalize itself. This is sort of the beginnings of obstetrics and gynecology as an actual field. And um, in addition to the demographic anxiety that they are responding to, they're also deeply, deeply concerned about the way in which pregnant persons, pregnant women as they understood them, are relying on midwives and folk healers to basically do the work of birth. Um, And they want to get these sort of itinerant faith healers and midwives out of the profession entirely. So, you know, they do a number of things that, you know, are licensing requirements, professional requirements begin to pop up at this point. Um, The American Medical Association is formed and it is largely um, in all male cadre of white doctors. And they're trying to keep these other healers, these, you know, unorthodox healers out of the process entirely. And so, you know, part of the campaign to criminalize abortion is focused on because that's one of the things the midwives and the folk healers do. Um, They not only deliver the babies, they help you when you don't want to deliver a baby. And so, again, it is this confluence of professional anxiety on the part of the physicians, but also this deep concern about the changing character of the country and what the country is going to be post-Civil War um, that really animates this interest in criminalizing abortion. Justice Thomas has basically taken the flip side of the argument that you made about, I guess, the eugenic history of abortion bans. And his, I mean, it is exactly the opposite of what you said a few minutes ago. His argument is that abortion is a tool which can be used to prevent black babies from being born. And so if nothing else, the state has a legitimate interest in prohibiting it in order to stop those sorts of eugenics from occurring. What's your response to Justice Thomas? So let me sort of elaborate his argument a little bit. Um, You know, Justice Thomas has noted the disproportionate incidence of abortion among African-American women. Um, You know, they have abortions in much higher numbers than their white counterparts, and certainly um, in terms of their own representation in the population. And, you know, I think he's tapping into that data and that statistic and making this argument that abortion is, as he puts it, a tool rife with the potential for eugenic manipulation. And in making that claim, that this was in a concurrence from 2019's Box versus Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky, he tries to graft the history of Margaret Sanger and the modern birth control movement to the history of abortion. And he notes then, and he is correct in noting this, that Margaret Sanger did work with the eugenics movement, which was very popular in the United States in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, She was trying to legitimize the birth control movement. And one way that she saw to do that was to link it to the eugenics movement, which was understood as a scientific movement. Um, Now we would understand that it is a pseudoscientific movement. But at the time, everyone was in the thrall of the eugenicists. And she thought this was a good way to expand the interest in birth control and voluntary motherhood. As you note, The history of abortion and the history of birth control are really different, and they go in opposite directions. And in fact, Margaret Sanger 
is not a proponent of abortion at all. She hates it. She believes that if women just had access to birth control, then they wouldn't need surgical or more intrusive interventions like abortion. So just get them access to birth control. Um, for the eugenicists, they're not that interested in abortion either. Their preferred method of reproductive control is forced sterilization of the sort that you see in the 1927 case, Buck versus Bell, where Carrie Buck, who is tagged a feeble-minded woman, is sterilized against her will. And the Supreme Court says, not a problem. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. And so the eugenics movement and the eugenicists and Margaret Sanger, not that interested in abortion. But Justice Thomas is very interested in layering abortion onto this other history um, in which eugenics really does play a role in at least some aspects of the early birth control movement. And I, my argument in that paper is the interest in eugenics is an effort to change the social meaning of abortion. And, and the reproductive rights and reproductive justice movements have been really effective in articulating the sex equality dimensions of abortion and the race and class equality dimensions of abortion. And this is a rejoinder. You know, if you think abortion is about women's equality, well, I have news for you. It's really about decimating the Black community by forcing Black women to have abortion so that there is no future for the Black community. It's about Black genocide. I mean, that is a very powerful rejoinder. It's not about gender justice. It's not about race and class equality. It is actually about racial injustice, and that's what abortion is doing. And, you know, I think the point that Justice Thomas is trying to make here um, is one that is intended, I think, in time to provide alternative grounds beyond originalism for overturning Roe versus Wade. I and mean, we have only overturned certain precedents when new facts have been determined to be significant, like in Lawrence versus Texas, for example, that was the reason, um, Brown versus Board of Education. And also in circumstances where we have wanted to correct or repair a racial injustice. And, you know, the court's decision in 2020 in Ramos versus Louisiana, which was a challenge to a law that allowed non-unanimous jury convictions to stand as a basis for conviction, the court struck down that particular precedent on the ground that it had not fully grappled with the history of non-unanimous jury verdicts um, as a means of promoting and securing white supremacy in the South. And so you could totally imagine a court saying, you know, Roe is really about racial injustice. And if we want to repair that injustice, the only avenue is to overrule Roe as well. I want to close by taking the rhetoric of the anti-abortion movement very seriously. Um, so, you know, we have Justice Thomas presenting abortion as if it is an entry towards um, um, towards eugenics. We have, you know, a common slogan that you hear is abortion is murder. And so, you know, th the idea is that abortion clinics are engaged in a sort of systematic killing that is similar in magnitude to the Holocaust. And if I believed that to be true, I would want to use every policy lever available to me to stop it. You know, I, I, I would want there to be birth control pills passed out on every street corner. I would want there to be very generous welfare programs for people who are pregnant. You know, 
every possible lever that can be used. And instead, you know, many of the same people who are now filing briefs asking the court to overrule Roe v. Wade also filed briefs in the Hobby Lobby case asking the court to limit access to contraception. So what's going on here? Like, I'm trying to understand why one of these things is not like the other. I think it comes down to this basic question, um, you know, is the anti-choice movement about care, whether it's of the fetus or of the pregnant person, or is it about control? You know, it's it's not just that those who are now calling for Roe to be overruled were also very much in favor of individual employers not being required to furnish contraception to their employees as part of an employee health plan. Um It's that many of the states where we see some of the most restrictive abortion legislation are states with the highest rates of maternal mortality and infant mortality. They have the most uneven opportunities for meaningful and scientifically appropriate sex education. Um, They have the most limited benefits in terms of TANF for needy families. Um, They have been the ones to refuse Medicaid expansion. So if the question is about loving life, where is the interest in life? And they're actually, I think, within the pro-life movement, as they understand themselves, there is actually a group that is making this argument. Um, And interestingly, it's largely a group of African-American Democratic lawmakers. So they call themselves the whole life Democrats. And They are very much against abortion, but they are also against state violence against Black people. They are also in favor of expanding Medicaid so that more people who are under-resourced can have access to health care. They are in favor of expanding the social welfare state through public assistance and TANF benefits. Um, You know, they are interested in thinking about the death penalty and, and the disproportionate impact of the death penalty on certain communities. So, Their view is literally, we are pro-life, but for the whole life. And one of the things I'm so fascinated by is how they are going to interact with the mainstream conservative legal movement where all of those other things are not on the table and, in fact, are exactly what the conservative legal movement abhors, right? So they're on the same page with regard to abortion, but on nothing else. And How that movement nests within the anti-choice movement, I think, is going to be a really interesting development because right now, they do need the whole life Democrats. They are always trotted out to show that, you know, there are Black people who hate abortion. Every time reproductive rights people talk about the race and class equality dimensions of abortion bans, they trot out the whole life Democrats to say, like, here are Black people who hate abortion. Well, you know, they do hate abortion, but they really want these other things that are just not on the table in terms of policy decisions that the conservative legal movement are willing to undertake. Um, You know, they are not interested in a broad and encompassing social welfare state, which is, you know, maybe would make it easier for people to keep pregnancies and to continue them. Thank you, Melissa Murray, for walking us through all of these issues and the potentially very grim future facing people who need an abortion in the future. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So that's another episode of The Weeds. Uh, Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Melissa for being my guest. The Weeds is produced by Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is Vox's deputy editorial director for Talk. 
And The Most Dangerous Branch will be back soon with a new episode about what the Supreme Court is likely to do to America's gun laws. 